of my favorite people. His heart is tender towards the Lord. And I believe what he is bringing tonight to speak is actually something that God's dropped into his heart for us, for this little group of people right here tonight at this conference. It's amazing. So if you guys would stretch out your hands, we're going to pray for Gary right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you brought Gary Benjamin here with us tonight. Father, we thank you for what you've placed in his heart. We thank you for your word dwelling richly within him. Father, I ask Holy Spirit that you would rest on him now, that the words that come out of his mouth would have your presence on them, that those words would then impact our hearts, that we would love you more, that we would know you better, God, that we would not leave this place unchanged, but that we would know how you feel about us. And I pray that you would also bless Jerry as well. We thank you that she is here. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm on now. You got me? Okay. Well, hey, thank you so much and uh, bless you and thank you for praying for me. Hey, before I begin, I want to introduce my uh, sweet wife of uh, just 35 years. She's this amazing woman of God. She is amazing. We have five children and 12 grandchildren, and we're believing for 25 grandchildren. How many have grandchildren in here? How many would like to take just a few moments and get your uh, pictures out and kind of distribute those? I brought a whole bunch of pictures. I'm kidding with you, but we have, uh, we have four of them that have been reproducing, praise God, four kids, and one of them's not even in the game yet. What's that? Yeah, okay, yeah. Tom has the same, uh, same thing. But anyway, <clears throat> this woman uh, is, uh, she's, she's, she's amazing. I don't know. She has caught my heart. She did that about uh, 20, well, about 37 years ago, I think. Yeah. And Jerry and I are only in our 30s, praise God. <laughs> Turn to Isaiah chapter 56, I'll start there in just a second. Yeah, we've, uh, we've had this incredible journey, you know, as, uh, as Karen, who, I love Karen Boring. Uh, I got to spend hours in the house of prayer with her, and I, I just, we just caught thermals together in the spirit. We had such a great time. But I love this man, Tom Grossman and his precious wife, Louise, I, I, I'm telling you, this man, when he begins to start leading us, you know, like he gets up there, just come on in, come on in. I'm like, I'm coming in. There's just something about the way he leads us in, uh, in prayer and, and the invitation that he does, you know, he, he does. I love this man. He's one of the, I think he's one of the best trainers of prayer in the nation. This is my opinion. Not that I know all the trainers in prayer, but I'm just saying he is one of the best trainers. And what you've got going here at G-Hop is legit. It's happening. And I'm so excited that you guys would come out to a prayer conference. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? You know, when you start talking about the house of prayer, because... Like here in Isaiah, let me just take a couple of verses here real quick. Isaiah chapter uh, 56, he's talking about, you know, the sons of the foreigners joining themselves. He's talking about bringing them. He says, in verse 7, it says, even them. Of course, we're in the middle of this, 
in Isaiah, we're in, this, in the middle of this picture of this great revival and this great awakening. But he says, even then, in verse 7, I'll bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. And, you know, Jesus said this too. He echoed this very same thing. There's something about houses of prayer that, that there is just this incredible, when we, when we pursue this, there's just this incredible smile from heaven over this thing. You know, years ago, uh, we were led, and by the way, I want to tell some stories. I was looking around, I, I don't know how many stories, but I have at least 25 supernatural stories. Un, uh, without any qualification, these are stories of great things that God has done. But one of these, I'll just tell you about it. This is the beginning uh, of, uh, we were as a, in a church, this was some years ago, at Shady Grove. How many of you guys attended Shady Grove? Because I've already had several people. Yeah. So you guys will remember some of this. We were led supernaturally on a fast to fast 21 days. And so we fasted this 21 days. It was a water fast, you know, and I remember losing about 35 pounds. And back then, um, I'd love to lose 35 pounds right now, by the way. But back then, you know, I was a little, a little skinnier dude, and we lost a bunch of weight and, you know, I didn't really hear anything. We didn't hear anything collectively until about the very last day. And in the very last day, we heard the Lord speak to us, it's time to build the altar. Build the altar first. And we said, Lord, what does it mean to build the altar? And he, he gave us a vision for a house of prayer. This is back in 1995 or 94. 1994. And he gave us a vision about a house of prayer, night and day prayer, even combined with worship because at Shady Grove we were... Our, our, kind of our theme was the Tabernacle of David was just this combination of this worship and prayer. And so in 1994, we, uh, you know, we started to build the altar, which, you know, we we're from our Baptist background. By the way, we, you know, we had long since left the Baptist background. But anytime the Baptists hear anything, it's about building a building. So that's kind of what we did. We heard build the altar. We said it's got to be a building. And so we did. But I remember the day of that dedication... We had built this building. We had paid for it. It was cashed out. And uh, on the day of dedication, how many of you guys were there on that day, day of dedication? You'll remember this story. Because there's something about a house of prayer that the Father smiles over. I mean, and not only that, but he, when he smiles, he, he, there's, how many believe when you read through the New Testament in the book of Acts... How many, how many kind of yearn for that type of interaction with heaven and earth? You know, it's still going on today, by the way. And we had one of these experiences when we dedicated this house of prayer. There are 777 feet around the house of prayer. We grabbed hands. Those of you guys that will remember, we grabbed hands. It was a cloudless day. Those remember? Cloudless day. We grab hands, and we're going to pray a prayer. There's somebody on the microphone. I think it was my father-in-law, Olin. He was on the microphone, I think, and he, he said, now we're going to pray a prayer, and you know, we kind of had it where it was mic'd up, and right when he said, and Father, the moment he said that, there was a loud, thunderous clap, <laughs> just like that, we all went, whoa, <laughs> just this, you know, this thing, so, well, you know, that's, that's a coincidence. 
You know, just a few weeks ago, we were at uh, Lewis and I and Rachel and some of our team were in uh, Virginia Beach. We're, uh, Lewis and I are working. Lewis is uh, leading. I'm one of the uh, guys assisting him in this ministry called United Christ. And we were in a prayer meeting with this lady, Ann Jimenez. You got to hear this. <laughs> How many ever heard of Ann Jimenez? Little Ann Jimenez, you know, she's like in her 80s. She's about this big. She weighs about maybe 70 pounds or so. I don't know. She's a little bitty thing. And so Lewis says, Ann, would you, at the very end, Ann, would you pray? And, she, and Ann bows her head, and when she prays, she goes, Father, and all of a sudden, the room went like this. Shook. <laughs> you say, well, you know, uh, ah, that's just probably a coincidence. You know, that just the moment she prayed, the moment she said something, all of a sudden the ground shook. That was just probably a coincidence. You know, I don't think so. I think if we begin to kind of see, there is something about this place of prayer that, the, that releases heaven to earth. It releases heaven to earth. It's a powerful thing. And so he says, I'm going to make you joyful in my house of prayer. We're in the middle of this global prayer movement, this massive thing that began in 1958. It's been swelling in the nations, swelling in the nations for decades, decades upon decades now. Well, here we are, almost, almost 60 years later, this massive prayer movement that has shaken the world. I mean, if you know what's going on right now in, in, the, in the, the global south, there is such a massive move of God. It is shaking nations up. There's such a massive harvest taking place. I forget the statistics now. They can't even keep up with how many conversions are taking place in the global south. It's powerful. And it's all because of this stirring movement of prayer amongst the church. Because the global prayer movement is now leaving outside ministries and moving into the local church. Because he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, if you, uh, you, know, if you think about a house of prayer, if it, that's what it's called. If it's called a house of prayer, you would expect when you walked into it, it would be a house of prayer. I'm telling you, when I walk into grace, I see a house of prayer. And when I look around this room, I see a house of prayer. But unfortunately, that's not happening in the West. It's happening in the global South. It's happening in some of the third world countries, but it's not happening. It's, it's not happening. Well, I think it's beginning to stir in the nation. I say it's not happening, but I believe it's beginning to stir in the nation. <clears throat> but if you were, you know, if you were going to go to Baskin Robbins, you would expect there would be ice cream at Baskin Robbins if they say, you know, 31 flavors. By the way, I used to be a manager at Baskin Robbins. It's my first job. And you guys are looking at the uh, recipient of the Golden Dipper Award. <laughs> it's one of my proud moments in my life. When I was awarded the Golden Dipper Award for high customer service and excellence and whatever I was doing at that time. All I know is my hair was really long. I had really long hair. I, you know, whenever I was saved, I was saved out of a rock and roll stuff, you know. I had really long hair and I had it up, tucked up under a brown wig that looked like icky twerp whenever, you know. <laughs> Just kind of stuck up underneath there in little strings and I'd put my hat on there, you know, and that's how I would do it. And I won this, you know, I, so I know all about Baskin-Robbins. And when you say Baskin-Robbins, you expect when you go to a Baskin-Robbins, you expect to have 
at least 31 flavors, right? Oh, there may be some cakes over here and some soft drinks, but as a whole, when you walk through the door, you're expecting uh, ice cream, right? When he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, that's a defining attribute. It's not a it's not some ministry that we relegate over here to a few. It's not a ministry that we put kind of to the periphery. It is a center expression of the identity of what we are as the body of Christ. We are a house of prayer. Because if you went to a Baskin Robbins, you walked through the door, and you saw maybe bicycles on the wall. You, know, you saw maybe one poster with a picture of some ice cream on it, but there's no ice cream. It, it, you maybe saw books. Maybe there was a room in the back where people could go eat ice cream if they had some ice cream. And maybe there's a little schedule on there that says between, between uh, 10 and 12, we serve ice cream here in the back room. You'd think, well, this isn't an ice cream place. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he contrasts. I want you to see this because the theme of this conference is to awaken the watchman. And so he says, the Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel, in verse 8, yet he said, I will gather uh, to him others besides those who are gathered to him. In verse 9 he says, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, it says. They are all ignorant. They are dumb dogs. By the way, I've had a few dumb dogs before. I just want you to know. But he's talking about dogs that don't bark, okay? How many, uh, how many are dog lovers here? Just real quick, just so I kind of know who are the dog lovers. How many are cat lovers and don't like dogs? Raise your hand. We've got a few. My wife is one of those. Okay. So every time dogs are referenced in our home, they're referred to as dumb dogs. Okay. That's how... So all, he said, all are dumb dogs. They, they cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. These are the watchmen. That's what he, how he's describing the watchmen. He says, yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. They are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain from his territory. Come, one says, I'll bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink tomorrow we will be as today and much more abundant. You know, there's an expression here. There's a contrast between this, this God's intention for this glorious end-time awakening called this global prayer thing. But in the midst of that, watchmen are sleeping. This is what Isaiah is talking about. It's time for the watchmen to wake up, amen? It's time. You know... <clears throat> He calls them dumb dogs, dogs that are meant to be on the alert, protectors, you know, dumb dogs that don't speak, that don't bark. How many of you saw that series, uh, uh, Lassie? I mean, Lassie was an amazing dog. I mean, Lassie, how many saw, the, how, you know, we're talking about Lassie, just want to make sure that you saw this. Okay, Lassie. Do you remember Lassie would come in, maybe one of the guys would be out there working in the field, Lassie would run up and bark, you know, something, and then go, what, what, what is it, girl? And it, and bark, Jimmy's in trouble? Where? He's in a tree? Where? He's at the lake. Let's go get it. Lassie was an amazing dog. But he describes this 
need these slumbering watchmen. He called them, instead of ones who would be on the alert, who would be expressive like a dog would, barking whenever there is something coming on the territory, then he says this is, this is, um, he says, this is the way they are. There is a need for the awakening of the watchmen. And praise God, there's an awakening taking place here in this house. But there's a great need for an awakening in our land for the watchmen to wake up. It's when we came back uh, from overseas, my wife and I served in Israel. Then we started the Brussels House of Prayer uh, there in, in Belgium. We served over there for about four years. When we came back to the United States, I'm telling you, we came back to a different nation. You would not imagine the slide that we had seen. And when we came back, we realized that uh, there was, our nation was in crisis. And, uh, you know, we just came back with just with this overwhelming burden. And, we, you know, we were watching it on TV. It wasn't just the culture shock. We were literally watching what, what, what you would never have seen on TV five years previous or six years previous. All of a sudden now it was just kind of out there. Things that were never talked about were being talked about. We felt an urgency come into our spirit. And uh, we were, uh, had been serving with, uh, for many years, or several years, I'd say, uh, with Lewis and Rachel. Lewis had started a ministry called Awakening USA, and I went, yes. And so when we got together, we realized that the greatest need in our nation right now, because there seems to be some kind of stirring a prayer, obviously, but the greatest need was for there to be awakening amongst the leaders of our nation. And so we started this, and Lewis will share with you tomorrow what we're doing uh, as far as stirring leaders to awaken the watchmen. They're called shepherds here in, in this passage, to awaken the watchmen. And so uh, anyway, man, I'm, I got stirred up. And so since then, we began to see lots of incredible miracles. We have more miracles that we could start. We could, Lewis and Rachel and I, Jerry, we could stand up here and start sharing you story after story after story. When we said yes to this ministry and we started doing it, we, we could just start telling you story after story of the miraculous uh, open doors that we have seen. It's a powerful thing. But anyway, I, wanted to, I want to do that because I want to share that with you because what, what is going on here at GHOP is very significant. Sorry, I'll get this. How is that? Is that better? Okay. It's very significant. And so, uh, you know, I want to just, just say, man, the Father's smiling. Smiling over Jehob. He's smiling over the yes that's in your heart. He's smiling over this. I want to I share tonight just some, just some truth to kind of stir your heart. I want, to, I want to share some stories and some things that maybe to, to increase an expectation. Because I believe that the Lord is coming. Some type of an apostolic authority is coming on the jihad. It has to do with a regional effect. And I, I want to speak to that because I believe that, that this is significant. That this is not this conference here and, and the weeks that lie ahead. These are not just business uh, as usual days, but there is something that the Lord wants to put upon. There's, a, there's something on offer that has to do with an apostolic authority that has, will have a great effect upon the city. And so because of that, I want to kind of stir this up. And uh, 
So I got three little points. To Number one is to be awakened to the call, which has to do more with our private life. I'll share that in just a moment. Awaken unto a united cry. And then uh, lastly, I want to I talk about this. Awakened with expectation uh, of an apostolic authority. Awakened with expectation and apostolic authority. So let me talk about this for just a moment, awakened to the call. You know, every believer, I don't care what stage you're in, I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for 40 years and you have a deep personal prayer life, every single one of us in this room are called to go deeper in prayer. We're called to, we're called to advance, to grow in prayer, to grow in this grace of prayer. And let me tell you, it's worth whatever it takes to cultivate a life of prayer. It's worth whatever effort it takes to cultivate it. And let me just say something about that. A life of prayer is something that must be contended for. And it has to be, it's an intentional thing. It doesn't just happen in your life. there, There is, you have to kind of go after it. And you guys know my testimony of how I, I just hated prayer. I mean, whenever I first came to the Lord, you know, I, I, I was just, I had an experience with him. I had a revelation. All of a sudden, I knew within my heart that there was a, there was a God who loved me. And everything about Jesus was real. I just knew it instantly. It was a moment. It was an encounter with God. I could take, it, take you to the place there at Mansfield, Texas, where it happened. It was powerful. But, you know, so I started getting into the Bible and stuff. And there were three things that I saw that... We're going to be that Jesus' disciples would do. There's three things that I knew Jesus' disciples were going to do. They're going to give, they're going to pray, and they're going to fast. There's three things that they said. And all three of those things I didn't bear witness to. I'll just tell you. <laughs> Giving, praying, and fasting. And, you know, you guys know my story, but, you know, I ended up being in a discipleship thing. If you, I'm just going to tell you the t- just testimony of it. I was in a discipleship thing where I had to make a commitment. Jerry and I were in it as well. Had to make a commitment where I had to pray one hour a day for a whole year. It was a little card with all these little check boxes, and you had to check them off every day. And you had an accountability partner. Somebody had to look at that. And you couldn't cheat because that's called sin. And it was kind of violation of the whole discipleship thing, you know. <clears throat> And we had to commit to one hour of prayer a day. And uh, I'd lived, I just moved into a house that had a big walk-in closet in my bedroom. And so I converted the walk-in closet into this, because uh, I read in the Bible, it says, when you pray, go into your closet. So I thought, dude, I'm going into my closet. And I made my closet, I put pillows down there, I put maps on the wall, I put, you know, the list of names of all the leaders and pictures of of our government. I had family in the church and all that stuff. You know the story. But I remember, uh, because I just didn't get this prayer thing, I remember standing outside of that door that night when the commitment began. It was at 9 o'clock. I was going to pray from 9 to 10 every night. And I remember standing outside that door thinking, well, here I go, you know. And I went in there, and I'm telling you, Something powerful happened to me. This is how I was birthed in prayer. I got down on my knees. I looked at that map on the wall, and I mean, something started happening. I got, I got anointed in the place of prayer. 
And I mean, I started praying with fervency. I prayed over every nation that I could say. I played hands upon the map. You know, and then I went over here to our national government, and I was praying over the national, the president, the vice president. I prayed, prayed over the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the judicial branches. I prayed over my family. I prayed over the church. And man, I mean, there was just like holy unction. I was just flowing with Holy Spirit vocabulary was coming out of me. And then, you know, I got to the very end of this, and I was out of breath, and I kind of ran out of my burden. And I, I looked down at my watch, and only five minutes had passed, you know. And I thought, oh, God, now what do I do? And so that hour, that whole year became the dreaded hour of prayer at 9 o'clock. It, it, was, it was the worst way I could end my day. I'd just walk into that room. And so I'd try to pray. I would sit in there, and I, my mind would wander. I'd be, you know, doing all sorts of things. And then I, my prayer just kind of ended up being, Lord, anything. I will, I'll do anything, just, I'll, but this, I'll do anything for you, anything, anything, I, I'd, I'd sit on the side, you know, anything, and then I'd lay down, anything, I'd go, anything, Lord, I'll do anything for you, anything, that, that year was up, my commitment was over. Didn't go back into the prayer room. <laughs> I thought, delivered, you know. <laughs> a couple of years, fast forward. Now, you know, I loved being in meetings. I loved studying the Bible. I loved all of that, you know. But this prayer thing, I just didn't get. And I, anyway, so, so fast forward. Jerry and I get married. This is 35 years ago now. 35 years ago, we are the very first people to come onto what is called the prophetic presbytery, where a, a couple comes and stands before three prophets, these mighty men of God that were from the nation, these mighty prophets. And so they come and call us. Jerry and I knelt there. We're just we're kneeling down and you know, just waiting on the word of the Lord. And this is what the prophet said. You have said to me, O man of God, anything... <laughs> Anything, anything. And I, I, just, I just started to weep, I'm just telling you. Because it, and that's, in that moment, I realized he was, he was there in that room with me. God heard everything I said. Even my voice inflection. He went from some distant deity to this present one. I'm telling you, my life was changed at that moment on. I just, I, it just kind of, I got undone in that. And when I start talking about the greatest thing that you can do in your life is develop a life of prayer, I'm telling you, it's intentional. You kind of have to go over it. You remember Larry Lee's book? Years ago, Larry Lee wrote a book called, Can We Tarry With Me One Hour? And Larry, in that book, describes something that, that is such a true thing. He describes duty, discipline, and delight. He said, there's, he said you know, when it comes to prayer, it kind of begins with duty. And then there's some form of discipline that surrounds it. 
before you enter into the delight of that. And I'm telling you, whenever I first began developing a life of prayer, I never could visualize the delight side of that. And so, I'm just saying, it's intentional. It doesn't just happen. You don't just go all of a sudden one day, you have a developing intimacy with God. It takes some intention. You kind of have to go after this. Last night I was reading in that book, Karen, that you put in our our thing. It was Bob Sorge's, one of his quotes. He said, one of the paradoxes is, we pursue him for things that we receive. And there is something that as we're pursuing him, it's one of the paradoxes of while we are pursuing and contending for him, we are actually then, we come into and receive the gift of that. And there's something about this, you know, I just, I just say it this way, whatever it takes, cultivate a prayer life. Cultivate it. You know, I want to look at this verse real quick in John, and then I'm, I'm going to just only share just a few, few minutes here. But John 15... Look at uh, 4 and 5. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. These are familiar verses. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Do you hear this? He's talking about your prayer life here. Because you see, as even what Karen said, it's a conversation. It's an interactive thing. It is this abiding in him. And when we talk about abiding, I'm talking about a conscious awareness of a communion with him. There is this interaction that's taking place. He says, if you abide in me and I in you, this is what he's saying, he's talking about here, then you're going to bear fruit. You know, you can't do it unless you abide in me. Verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he's talking about this prayer life, this cultivated life of interaction with him. He says, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Let me just, let me just say it this way, because he's really talking about this life here. So what comes out of our prayer life is something that's beyond natural. It, it really is supernatural. What, what happens is, as you cultivate a life of prayer, something beyond the natural begins to start taking place. Something, then, something supernatural, something beyond yourself begins to start happening. You know, out of your prayer life comes this, this uh, it's a confidence, this faith, this, this thing that begins to start stirring up inside of you that, that all of a sudden now begins to start seeing things that aren't as if they are. That comes out of your prayer life, this, this confidence, this faith, this hope that begins to be established. It begins to be born in your heart. Out of that comes this, this kind of this motivation, this, this, this desire, this want to to do things. Out of it comes this a catching a vision. You, I mean, you just see things. You catch vision. Your heart begins to be stirred. It begins to be motivated. There's things that begin to start stirring in your spirit that comes out of your prayer life that begin to shape your future and shape your destiny. It doesn't happen, out, it doesn't happen on its own. It happens because of a cultivated life of prayer. Something beyond yourself begins to start stirring in you, beyond the natural. You start finding this sustaining strength in times of pressures and trials. You find this, this power to overcome in hidden battles. You know, the things that you struggle with on the inside. The things that nobody else sees. 
The power, there's a power all of a sudden. Out of this prayer life comes, out of this life of interaction comes this ability and power and strength to overcome in hidden battles and to win the victory. Out of this inward, this life of prayer, there's this living, there's this a peace. There is, it's, there is a, an abiding peace. It doesn't, it's not determined by outward circumstances. There is a peace. There is a shalom that comes upon your spirit out of a cultivated life of prayer. There is a discernment to be able to, to see, to be able to know the will of God. Do you know there are four dimensions of the will of God? There is the sovereign will of God. It's the will of God that was initiated before the foundations of the world, right? It's that plan of salvation, the redemption of our souls. That was, a, that was, a, that was the sovereign will. And, and we're coming to a sovereign conclusion of human history. That's the sovereign will of God. Out of a cultivated life of prayer, you begin to discover and discern the sovereign will of God. There's also the moral will of God, the moral, God's moral will. And uh, you, you, you find that, you discover his moral will, the Ten Commandments, the, 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 the things that were specifically conditioned with our design as humans, you know, the moral will of God. And then there is the wisdom or the logos, the logos will of God. That's which is written in the word of God. But then there's the rhema will of God, the, the moment, the word, the, the Lord speaking, the Holy Spirit quickening something to you. That rhema will of God. Those four dimensions of the will of God, are, you can only come in. This is what Romans, the book of Romans says. Paul was saying this. He said, you know, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's talking about your prayer life, the place of renewal where your mind is being renewed. You come into the fullness of the will of God. You begin to discover it. You walk differently than people do in the world. Amen? Man, I said, this guy is like preaching really good up here. There is this... There's a wisdom that comes to make right decisions. There's a favor and a blessing that comes out of this cultivated life of prayer. Man, it's like you have to be insane not to want this. You know, all that this, in, this incredible encounter. And you know what? You can't produce spiritual life on your own. You can't bypass this. How many know in the kingdom there are no shortcuts, right? There are certain things that are established and the way of intimacy with God is through the life of prayer. And it's a very difficult thing to cultivate, but boy, it's worth it. Amen? So, <clears throat> you can't produce spiritual life on your own. No more than an Olympic star by diligent training can run, by track star can run 80 miles an hour. It's just impossible. But I've noticed in my life, and I'm not some kind of spiritual giant, I'm probably... I'm probably one of the weaker people prayer in this. Even though I've been committed to this for many years, I'm just telling you, I have discovered that there is a, a, a beyond naturalness that takes place around my life, and it comes out of this simple, devoted, 
uh, to this one place, a cultivated life of prayer. I'm just saying that to, for, for an awakening, we've got to awaken to the call. And it's not enough to, for you to just go into the prayer room and sit in the back. It takes time to cultivate intimacy with God. That's a great place to start. You know, uh, I don't know where all my stuff is here. I'm telling you, one of the great places to start, if you, don't, if you want to know where it is, the school of prayer, this is a great place to start. I'm not, hey, I'm not just promoting this. This is a great place to start. I mean, just go after this. So that's all that I just said was a, what we'll call an extra blessing there. Did I mention the school of prayer? The school of prayer starts at about two weeks. And I'll tell you what, would you just, would you do, would you just, would you make a decision today? I'm going to, I'm going to become a person of prayer. Could you make that decision? And I don't know where you're going to start. I mean, years ago, we started this kind of family thing on the Shabbat. We had a desire to reach Jewish people. And I realized that between the, 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 the week, it was very difficult for us to find any time. Because, you know, it takes, it takes time for your heart to become saturated. I'm talking about it takes time to do that. And so we got on this rhythm, the Shabbat. We started doing this Shabbat. We did it because we were going to reach, uh, we had a desire to reach Jewish people. But the thing is that you've got to get all of your work done before Friday evening so that Saturday is a day where you can just kind of, in the morning, just kind of let your heart get soaked in the presence of God. Now, I was a pastor. We had, at the time, I think three services on the weekend. So I had to speak on Saturday night and two on Sunday morning. And so I remember when, we, when I did this, I was forbidden to prepare sermons during that time. I had to get all my work done between Monday and uh, that Friday morning so that I could just enter into this time where it was just me and him and just let my heart here in that private place just had it be cultivated. And, uh, you know, it was in that time, and I discovered there's a rhythm that we were created to do. It's like six days we work. One day there is a day where we just can, can give extra time to just allow in our heart. And I would do it more like from about 8 in the morning to about noon, about four hours, where I would just kind of open my heart up, not to, not to prepare for a sermon, not to do anything like that, but just to open my heart up and just listen and, and pour my heart out in prayer and, and press in in intimacy with him and to listen to his voice. And what, what Tom was leading us into tonight, just experiencing that where I could listen to the Father and his speaking his word over me, you know. Wow. And so I discovered that there is a rhythm, there are sacred rhythms that we were created for, and that's one of those. And that's a way. If there's a day, you got need one day a week at least where you can just spend extra time pouring into that. Amen? Okay. Praise God. So uh, I, I, I want you to look in Acts chapter 12, and I'm going to kind of conclude here with some stories. Acts chapter twelve. I love I love the book of Acts because it gives us it gives us the picture of the early church and it was a praying church.
It's in Acts chapter 2. This is a very dis- difficult, desperate time that we're coming into here. In, verse, in tw- uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, just to kind of give you an impact so that we can kind of see this. This James that he's talking about was one of the three intimates with Jesus. This is one of the sons of thunder, you know. This is one of the ones that said, you know, Lord, whenever you, whenever you come into the stuff and you're like the dude and you're king, then can we sit on the right and on your left-hand side? This was James and John that said that. And so Herod, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, and when we lived in Israel, Herod the Great stuff is thrown all over the land, these magnificent structures that are still there today. He was doing it for his ego. They call him Herod the Craze, actually, is what they call him. And this, he, he just this wicked, evil man. And this is the grandson, and he thought it, and he was, he, you know, he was a bit doing this because of the, uh, you know, the, the, to kind of make himself look good inside, in front of the Jews. It was kind of a, uh, what is it called, a poll, a rating? What is it? To increase his ratings, I guess you'd say. So he thought he would just touch the church. And, you know, it happened. I mean, there was, a, there was another martyr, I mean, Stephen. There may have been others that, that were not recorded, but this is the first apostle that was martyred. And in this community, I want you to think of it like this. It's as if, as if the authorities came and took Tom, Tom and, and took him out into the parking lot. And according to this, it says, and they killed James with a sword, and that means that they cut his head off. That's what that means. And then out in the parking lot, now in our community here, they cut Tom's head off. Can you imagine just the sense of, of horror and terror? I mean, he's like one of the dudes in this community. And then they get Gary Hutchins. Hutchinson. They get him, and they take him in prison. They take him to the prison. And uh, this is what that, it was like this horror. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I mean, there, there was, this was a desperate moment. This was a desperate moment. And uh, it says here, it says, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, when, they, when he killed James, he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when we lived in Israel, these were the, some of the worst days to be in Israel. Because the days of unleavened bread, there was no leaven anywhere. If you wanted to eat a hamburger with real bread, you, you went somewhere else. You went to the Arab sections of Israel. <laughs> we love that pita, by the way. Can we pause for just a moment and reflect? Pita and hummus. <sighs> I love that stuff. And I resemble that as well. So he didn't want to do it while everybody was there because, you know, three times a year the pilgrims came in. He wanted to wait until it was all done when they all left because he didn't want there to be any kind of strife. So this was his thought. That's why he wanted to wait until the end. But I want you to see this. So when he had arrested him, 
and put him in prison and delivered him to four squads. You're talking about high security. I mean, there's four watches in the Roman watch. So there's basically four guards. He, <laughs> so Peter was strapped. He was handcuffed to two guards. And then there were two guards at the gate. So there are four people to guard him. So that's what he said. So he was high, high security and, uh, you know, to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. But look at this. In verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer. I want you to begin to see something about this apostolic authority in the place of the praying church. It says constant prayer was offered for him. That word constant, is a, it's, a, it's a Greek word meaning it, it's more than earnest. In fact, it's the same word that is used for the agony of Jesus in the garden. It's the stretching. It's a medical term. It means, it means when your muscles are stretched as far as they can possibly be stretched. This is what was going on in the church. Can you imagine the absolute earnestness of this prayer? It says that they were praying constantly, constantly, earnestly. And it says that when Herod is about to bring him out, of course, you, then you find, the, you find this sense that, you know, we know the story. But let me just say, there is this awakening to a united cry. And the only way that I know that a united cry is really awakened is when there is a dramatic sense of urgency. You know, if, if, uh, if I were to just to describe to you, if you were like, if you were like uh, Rip, Van Wink, Rip Van Winkle had, go, had fallen asleep and you woke up, you, you fell asleep 30 years ago and you woke up in this day, I, w- I want to just kind of show you a picture of what our nation looks like in the last 30 years. A divorce increased from 4% to 51 in one generation. 51% divorce, 4 to 51%. Cohabitation, 65% of altar-bound couples live together. That is, that's statistics even in the church. There is a, a lifestyle of immorality that is happening in our nation. 57 million unborn babies. Lewis, is that correct? Is that where we are right now? About 57 million Estimated babies had been murdered from the time that you went to sleep and the time that you woke up. 57 million babies murdered. The unborn child. And many of those are through tax-paying funding. That means our government is endorsing this. Marijuana legalized. I know in my, in my day, I, I never was into the drug scene, but... There have been a lot of people that have been jumping up and down 30 years ago to have marijuana legalized. But to me, there's just some kind of a, there's something that has been opened in our nation. And this marijuana stuff is, this, uh, this uh, drug stuff, graphic pornography is just a click away. This, in the last 30 years, this is destroying the life of the church, by the way. The, the internet pornography is sucking the life out of the church right now. What Gary was talking about, I mean, it's happening. So this graphic stuff that's happening, homosexuality and transgender lifestyles, uh, promoted even by our president. I'm praying for our president. I bless him in Jesus' name. 
But, you know, even our president is standing up and endorsing this type of stuff, a homosexual gay marriage, and there's even homosexual ordinations going on right now, ordaining pastors and Christian, supposed to be Christian leaders. This is, so I'm talking about in the last 30 years. For the first time in the U.S., there are more, more than 50% of babies being born are born out of wedlock. I'm talking about an urgency here. Over 110 million Americans with STDs, $18 trillion in national debt, radical Islam and terrorism uh, is kind of sweeping around, this, around the world and even coming into our own nation. You know, I say all that because you see the urgency of the hour, but you know what? Even when I say that, we're not moved by urgency. Have you noticed? It's dire that this has kind of happened in our nation over a period of time. It's been a slow, uh, a slow th- thing. But that doesn't stir us, for some reason, with urgency. Can I, can I just share one other thing? I think maybe Tom will share about some about this, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. But 2015 saw the release of some of the most vile, a flood of wickedness that was opened uh, that the generation, the next generation is going to have to deal with it. This happened in 2015. But for some reason, that doesn't still stir us with a sense of urgency. You know what stirs us with urgency is when something gets personal. Have you noticed? You know, one of the darkest days of my life was, it was a terrible time. It was January 18th, 2001. Some late in the afternoon, just going about my uh, day, just gotten back from the office, and uh, I get a call that my son, Landon, was in a very serious car accident. It was a, ter- it was a terrible time, you know, even when I think about it. It was in a terrible accident, they said, and for us to get to the hospital as soon as we could. Now, I had been, as a pastor, I'd been to the hospital many times, and I know they don't give you any information. I said, listen, I'm a pastor. I, you know, I, I work with the chaplain. I, I meet families all the time. I said, how is my son? They said, you need to get here as soon as you can. I'm telling you, every time you hear that, that usually means that, you're, that they're gone. And uh, so my wife and I got together. We started driving. There was a traffic jam on 30. It was rainy. Uh, and we couldn't hurry, you know. It's like we were insane, you know, with with uh, fear, and we were trying to pray, but you're numb. You're completely numb during that time. And so we get to the hospital. Jerry gets out. To, we're going to go wait for the chaplain because the chaplain said he wanted to see us, and I always know what that means. And we're standing in there waiting. We're in the waiting room. Jerry and I. We're sitting there, and on the television, they're showing the accident where my son was at. And they're reporting a fatality. And we're listening to that, and we're just waiting on the chaplain to come. And we're sitting there in that, in that moment, absolutely just numb. You know, we're trying to pray, you know. And then the chaplain led us out and uh, met, led us to the, the neurosurgeon, the head of neurosurgery there at... Uh, the Baylor, Methodist, Methodist, there in Dallas, the trauma center, Dallas. 
And they said Landon was found not breathing at the scene of the accident. They had head on into a fire truck. He went through the windshield, was stuck in the windshield next to this truck. And uh, he wasn't breathing. They intubated him and care flighted him to the hospital. And when we got there, the neurosurgeon says, I want you to look at me. He said, uh, it's dire. That's what he said. He said, your son is still alive, but he's not expected to live. And I remember thinking, and I remember something inside of Jerry in particular is like, well, you're not the final word. <laughs> and so we're in this hospital, and we, we, you know, we go, and there's a phone call. That's May. Next thing you know, that waiting room is filled with some of the most precious praying people, contending people. The, the sound of it got so loud at times. They were contending in prayer for my son, who was not expected to live. The doctor said he will get his brain will swell until his vital signs get so weak until he just expires. And so people began to pray. You know, we were part of a large church and so network, and that's people here and all over the, all over the nation just praying. We kind of know what it means to be in a desperate situation. We know what a sense of urgency is. We know what it means now when a, the church comes together and begins to stretch out, you know, to begin to just kind of contend. I mean, I can really step into this Acts chapter 12 scene because I experienced somewhat in my own personal life. And I'm telling you what, urgency doesn't happen until it becomes personal. When it becomes personal, all of a sudden urgency begins to start taking over. And I've only seen a community come alive with a united cry when a sense of urgency comes together and begins to unite their hearts. And so the clock went on, and uh, I've got good news. 17 hours later, Jerry standing beside, it, beside his bed, constantly calling, Landon, 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 Landon. 17 hours later, despite what the doctor said, I mean, somebody even had a vision where his brain, you know, saw, they saw angels going up and down and fixing his brain, if you would. <laughs> I'm just saying, all I know is my son woke up. 17 hours later, six months later, he won the state golf championship, you know. <laughs> and uh, now he serves as the youth pastor at Gateway Church there. Today's his birthday, right? Yeah, today's his birthday. Yeah, amen. I know what it means. There's something about a contending church. And so we know the, we know the story here in uh, Acts chapter 12. Constant prayer, and then Peter's released. He's released supernaturally. He goes and meets with uh, the, the church. They can't believe it. It's there. It's kind of humorous because it's just typical of our kind of prayer. Because you can imagine, Father, we're asking in the name of Jesus. You would send your angel into that prison. You will unlock him from those soldiers, God, and that you will bring him right through the prison gates, and you will open those prison gates, God, and that you will release him. In the name of Jesus. Then Peter comes knocking on the door. No, that's not him. What? <laughs> I mean, it is kind of humorous. Church is beginning to 
kind of begin to wake up, if you would, in the book of Acts to this apostolic authority. You know what else happened? You read on in this chapter, Herod is struck dead by the judgment of God. There's something powerful about a praying church that shapes history. And so this apostolic, this apostolic uh, authority, this apostolic expectation and authority, man, is a big deal. You know, when it comes to expectation, or I'm sorry, when it comes to this sense of urgency, it doesn't have to be a crisis. It can be something that the Lord speaks to your heart. And urgency means, it, it, it means it's something that compels you or presses upon you to act immediately. And I remember one day when we were in the house of prayer, uh, there was a, we began to get this mandate from the Lord about Israel and about it was an urgency to pray and that we were, we were to commit ourselves, we would commit hours a day in prayer, in our house of prayer, hours a day to Israel. And, uh, and he said, if you'll do this, I remember the word of the Lord, if you do this, I'll take care of the rest of the stuff, all of the other things that you're contending for in the city. Just focus on this one thing right now. And so we just did it. We started. And this is what the word of the Lord was. I'll, I'll never forget it. I was, in this, I was in the prayer room, and this prophet he begins to declare this. We all witness to it. And then he says, I'm going to send a sign to confirm this. This is book of Acts kind of stuff. Said, going to send a sign. Yes. Whatever that means, send a sign. He's going to confirm it. And it happened just about three hours later. It was on the news. Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 11. At that time, I don't remember 8, but I remember those three. Channel 4, Channel 5, and 11 said, something really unusual happened today. <laughs> this is how they, they opened this. Something really unusual happened today. A straight-line wind about approximately 80 miles an hour went right down Main Street in Grand Prairie, Texas. I started crying. <laughs> I did because that was a sign. Because you see, about 20 years before, we, we as a local church, without knowing anything about prayer or anything, but we're going to take on our city for the glory of God. And we went down there, and we marched down Main Street in Grand Prairie, shouting at powers and friends about, we command you in Jesus' name to come down. This city belongs to Jesus. You know, completely without, completely immature. And I will tell you, we got our butts kicked the next two years. <laughs> we got complete. I, I, we went through all sorts of struggles. And that straight line win was saying, if you do this, I'll take care of the rest. I'll take care of it. It was saying, I, I saw that. I saw that moment. The, the, the intention, you know, it just kind of created a bunch of unnecessary war because of, instead of going down and declaring the glories and the beauty of Jesus, we went down there screaming at principalities and commanded them to come down in Jesus' name. By the way, that doesn't really work unless you have a, a, a word or an authority, right? And we just didn't, you know. But we were doing it, man, with our banners, you know, raising those banners. 
Creighton Jones, Jesus' name. <laughs> and then all hell broke loose in our church. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it was a difficult time. <clears throat> you know what happened that year? That when we, when we made this commitment, we started doing this? We, we, 2,500 people gave their lives to the Lord that year. The greatest harvest we had ever seen in our church. It's happening through our, the center. All those constantly, the people that were up underneath the bridges and uh, the young people, everything, all of a sudden we just kind of started coming into a bit of a harvest that we had never seen before. He said he would take care of it. There's some kind of an apples. I want you to hear this. I'm going to speak to raising the expectation, Jihop, because Jihop is not just an altar of adoration. It's not just an altar. It's not just a place of encountering the intimacy. It is that. But it's also a place of apostolic authority that releases something. You know what prayer does? It releases his government upon the earth, his rule and his reign upon the earth. You know, Derek Prince talks about uh, this wonderful story because, you know, a sense of urgency can come because of a word that you get, like we did. A sense of urgency. We reprioritized our life. We just began to do it, and then God supernaturally begins to start doing this. I love this book. Have you read this book, uh, Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting? Derek Prince. It's a great book. He says, from 1949 to 1956, I was a pastor of a congregation in London, England. He said, I retained a special interest in God's dealings with the Jewish people, which had first kindled in my experiences in Jerusalem from the time of the birth of the state of Israel. He was there when all that took place. He says, early in 1953, I received information from a reliable source that Joseph Stalin, the Russian dictator who at the time ruled the Soviet Union uh, was, uh, and as an unchallenged uh, dictator, was planning a systematic purge directed against the Russian Jews. So he gets this information. <sighs> it's the same kind of experience that Nehemiah had when he heard about the walls that were torn down. It's the same kind of thing that happened when Esther heard the decree. Something came in, a sense of urgency. And, and, and so he begins... He says, I meditated on the situation. I just, it just began to stir in him. And somehow I felt that God was laying at my door the responsibility for the Jews in Russia. I shared my feelings with leaders and a few small prayer groups. Eventually we decided to set one day aside for special prayer. He said, with fasting and on behalf, on behalf of those Russian Jews. He said, I don't recall the exact date, but he belie- I believe it was a Thursday, he says, all the members of our groups voluntarily committed themselves to go without food. They fasted for God's intervention on behalf of the Jewish people. Okay, listen to this. <clears throat> he said, uh, there was no particularly dramatic spiritual manifestation. There wasn't any tingling, uh, any sense of emotions that were stirred. But within two weeks from that day, the course of history inside Russia was changed by one decisive event, the death of Stalin, who suddenly died from a brain hemorrhage. And because of that, he said, none of our prayers were ever, Lord, would you kill Stalin? Only that you would spare the Jew- those Jewish people in Russia. 
And he said there was no advance warning of this sickness. He died, even though 16 of the best physicians in Russia tended Joseph Stalin. They couldn't save his life. He died. Kind of reminds me of book, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, doesn't it? And Herod suddenly dies. I had a friend, I have two stories and I'm closing. I had a friend of mine named Jim Mills, one of the guys that discipled me. He was in YWAM, Youth of the Mission. And one day while they were in Berlin, this was during the communist time of Berlin, while they were, uh, they were in a, in a meeting, you know, this Youth of the Mission, and they were, he was teaching some children, like kindergarten-age children, how to, hear, how to pray and hear the voice of God. And so they were sitting there and kind of gone through it, and, you know, what did you hear? Well, I, I heard that I'm supposed to pray for my mom, you know, and so on. But one of the little girls, after he said, you know, we're praying, he said, what did, what, what did, the, what did the Lord speak to you? She says in a real quiet little way, Jim described it, in a real quiet little voice, I feel like we're supposed to go to the wall and pray that the wall will come down. And Jim goes, well, you know, uh, well, sweetie, you know, and he started reasoning. He thought, well, you know what? We, we got to do something about this because, you know, because it would hurt her feelings. And so he took the little girls down to this part in the wall in Berlin and they laid hands on the wall, the little girl. And she says, Lord, would you tear this wall down? Okay, and then she kind of skips off, you know. He says, <laughs> two weeks later, there's a photo. Uh, Jim, you ought to hear Jim tell this story because he just, it's, he's so moved by it every time. There's a photo that I think became one of the photos of the century. It's in that category. It's a photo of a particular piece of the wall that was torn down first. And you know what piece of the wall that was? <laughs> Where that little kindergarten had laid hands. I'm telling you, there's something about the church, the apostolic authority of a church. We need to raise our expectation. We need to raise our expectation. We need to start contending for more than just some things. You know, we need to... There's an interaction. I remember one day... I was, uh, had gone to Israel, and we had moved to Israel. I sold everything. I had a pretty comfortable life. had a big house, you know, really comfortable. <laughs> house was very comfortable. We sold everything. And, you know, we went, yeah, we're going to the nations. We moved to Israel. And about three weeks into Israel, I thought, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> you know. And I was thinking, here we are sitting in a prayer room there on looking, overlooking Mount Zion there in Jerusalem. And I thought, what have I done? And I said, Lord, does this mean anything to you? I remember just saying consciously, that whole morning I walked down towards, it was about a seven or eight minute walk from our house down the hill to the prayer room. And I didn't even tell Jerry what was going on in my mind, but I was really struggling because I was thinking, here I am, just, I'm going to go to this prayer room. And I, do what, is what I'm doing make any difference? And so I go into the prayer room. I'm just really troubled by this, and we're, I'm about to start a two-hour set. And right before I play the piano, and I'm not one of these guys who feels things, but all of a sudden I felt the, the room fill with angels. Listen to me. And I went like, whoa, what is that? And I thought it was my imagination because this is what I heard, heard, overheard it say, heard them say. He's about to start. And I went, whoa. 
they're here, they're here. And then I thought, that's got my imagination. And I hit one chord, and Jerry, will, and Jerry can testify. I hit one chord on the piano, and this lady about, I don't know, a few rows in, jumps up, and she says, i got to say something real quick. She says, right before you started to play, I felt the angels fill this room. And this is what I heard them say, he's about to start. And I thought, I mean, I started weeping, just like I'm doing now, because... There is such a thin line between what we see right here and what is the reality all around us. Brothers and sisters, we have to contend for a bit more, don't you think? I was, we went to Israel, and this is the last story, we went to Israel. And the whole, the whole time we were there, we were there because we were going to be going to start the Brussels House of Prayer. Because uh, we knew, and the reason why I was there, because I was good friends with Rick Ridings, who was the director of Sukkot Hillel, and uh, we went and served with him, but we also did get a bit of mentoring. He was a guy that had worked uh, for about 15 years or so in Brussels. And so, good friends, so here we were in Israel serving with him and getting some mentoring from him. And while I was there, um, we were praying together, and he, we were praying over the starting the Brussels House of Prayer, this work. And then he says to me, he says, uh, Gary, I, I feel, this is an impression I have. He said, I feel like the Lord is going to knit you with two medical doctors and they're going to be real key for the starting of the house of prayer there, the ministry starting there. Two medical doctors. And you know how when somebody gives you a word, what do you do? You know, just kind of like, oh, okay, that's great. But I'd forgotten about it. We moved to Brussels and uh, we, st- we landed in Waterloo which is where Napoleon, you know, the armies of Napoleon with the, the generals from England, and it's where, you know, what they said, and the reason why we wanted this place is because it says the fate of Europe was decided here. We thought, whoa, <laughs> this is where we need to be. We had a base, our team's in, we start to pray night and day there. Just, we're not doing any ministry at this time, just only ministry to the Lord, praying, God, would you begin to move in this nation? And uh, so while we were there um, praying, one of the words that came said that the spiritual atmosphere is changing. What an encouraging word, right? When you're praying and contending, the spiritual atmosphere is changing. And there's going to be a sign. Oh, no, not another word. There's going to be a sign. And if you've ever been to Brussels, you know what a miraculous thing this is. This sign is going to be, because the spiritual atmosphere is changing, this is going to be an historic, the, historic, the warmest spring in the history of Belgium. That was the word of the Lord as a sign. Does this sound like the book of Acts here? Only if it came to pass. That spring was the warmest spring in the history of Belgium. Let me tell you what, Belgium is cold at least 10 months out of the year. We were celebrating uh, the, the Waterloo Day on the last part of June. It's the anniversary date, and it was like 38 degrees in June. I'll just give you an idea. That summer, I mean that year, when we, when we got there, that year then, the year that we had prayed, the sign was, it was like the second year we were there, the sign was, 
the warmest spring. It was the mildest spring they've ever recorded in the history of Belgium. You can look it up to this day. So he said, the spiritual atmosphere is changing. And so, we, but we needed to move in town. And uh, I get, is this, is this dying? This is, this, this is dying. Hello? Yeah, let me grab that real quick. Thanks, Benjamin. Let me just turn this off. I got to finish this real quick. Okay, that's good. Thank you. Are you going to go ahead and put... I'm like, I'm like three minutes out here. Just give me... So, thank you, Benjamin. Isn't he amazing, by the way? Okay, so I, so we had the mile of spring, we got this word that the spiritual atmosphere is changing, and then, so, but we're still praying about moving into the center of the city. We're out in, out, it's a sub- suburb, it'd be like, to Dallas, we'd be like South Arlington was to uh, Dallas. And so we're praying, Lord, would you open a door for a building, buildings were expensive, we looked around, and so I... I get, Jerry and I do this worship thing at the parliament, the European, the EU parliament. And I'm up there, you know, doing this worship thing. And uh, about this time, one of the brothers in British, deep, beautiful British accent, he, he speaks this word out of Isaiah. And something about him, just my heart just goes, you know, when that happens. And I just kind of link to him. And so afterward, after the meeting, we got, I got with him and I said, Hi, I'm Gary, and he goes, Gary, it's nice to meet you, you know, he's just a real jolly dude, you know, and we were talking, and then he introduces his wife to me, so it's Roger and Rachel, in the course of the conversation, they say, they say to me, well, we're two medical doctors, <laughs> and I said, did, did you guys, do you guys have a heart to start a house of prayer, and they go, this is why we came. We just don't know how to do it. But we have a building. It's about 100 yards from what is called the White House of the Europe. Of, of Europe. About 100 yards. We have a four-story house, which became the Brussels House of Prayer, and they just bought last, a, couple of days ago, or a couple of months ago, they just bought the building next to it. So it's really growing to this full night and day expression there in the very heart of Europe, lifting up this thing while we were there praying. Okay, I'm just saying the spiritual atmosphere is changing. So we're standing in this place beginning to get in. This is faith just came into our hearts, and this is our declaration. We'd say that the spiritual atmosphere of Brussels is changing. Hearts and minds are opening to the gospel right now. The spirit of oppression is being broken. There is a generation rising up. This is our faith declarations that came out of this thing. And guess what? It started happening. The spiritual atmosphere started changing. We were praying specifically uh, over this rise of anti-Semitism. In the year, the year that we were praying that, the European Parliament passed unprecedented legislation 
uh, regarding anti-Semitism in Europe. It's a powerful thing. It had never happened before. You said, that's a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. We're talking about apostolic authority in the place of prayer. We're talking about the real government of God being released upon the governments of the earth. Not because of we're something, because we're, if you saw how weak we were, <laughs> little, Jerry and I and our team, about, there's about 10 of us on the team, we're, only half of us can speak French, the rest are just nodding our head all the time, you know, but we're just praying, you know, in, this, in these weak prayers, just these declarations, but something began to happen. The youth meetings that we, we started became the, the explosions, became the largest gathering of young people in Brussels. Hundreds of young people gave their lives to, to, to Jesus. We saw inroads to the Jewish community as well as to the Muslim community. I'm telling you, there's just something about this. And so I want to just, as we close out here, I want to ask, I know... Uh, um, Dude, I'm just, I want to stir your faith. I want to stir your faith. This is not just some little activity that we do back here that's kind of cool that we encounter God in. There's something powerful. I'm just, I'm just going to declare that GHOP has regional apostolic authority. That if something can begin to be stirred within the very life of this community to where there is this, I mean, I'm not talking about just a few of us, but all of us beginning to go in and develop a personal life with Jesus, a personal life, a personal prayer life. And then as we come into a sense of urgency, uh, and that urgency can just be the word of the Lord that comes upon our heart, we come into a place of unite, a united cry. And when that begins to happen, when there is the spirit of unity in the place of a united cry, something of the glory of God is released upon the earth. It happens every single time. I can spend, I have more than 25 more supernatural stories that I've seen, I've I've written down. I'm not going to bore you with those at this time because of the hour. I'm just saying there's something that begins to happen when we unite together in this place of prayer. Amen. Amen. Now, how many just, I know Tom's already led us in a beautiful ministry time, but how many just kind of deciding, man, I'm going I'm to go after a deeper life of prayer. I'm making a decision today. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going I'm to go after this thing. I'm going to contend for this thing. I'm going I'm to press in until it begins to start shaping. I'm telling you, it's like I said, it's not something that just happens. It's something you have to contend for. You have to seek. If you want to discover the knowledge of God, you want to come into that place, you ought to read, uh, what is it, Proverbs chapter, I think it's chapter 3. It talks about these lists of things, but it all has to do with seeking it like silver and searching, you know, and all this, this intending, this, this intentional seeking. But I loved what Tom said last night, you take one step towards him, he takes 10 steps towards you. Would you just put your hand on your heart here? And just for a few moments, I'd like to ask the team to just come. And, uh, and as well, I'd like for all of the singers uh, that are here, that are part of the house of prayer, all the singers, 
uh, the musicians that aren't going to be on the stage. I would like for you guys to come up and stand up here in the front. Those of you that are participating on some worship team, your singers or musicians, I want you to just come and stand up here at the front. Bless you as you do. I just want to pray for you here in just a moment. Can we, can we just, as you put your hand on your heart here, man, all of us have got to go deeper. And what an hour to be living, right? Can I tell you, all day long, you're in a culture and a world 